your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And uh, this morning, we're going to continue through, through our study of Romans. I want to thank Ken for filling in while I was gone, and I know Ken Needham did a great job, and I haven't been able to listen to your message yet because the internet over there is kind of sketchy at times, but uh, I heard you did a wonderful uh, message on, on uh, Newton, John Newton, and Amazing Grace, and what a wonderful thing to speak on. But this morning, as we turn our hearts to God's Word, I just want to read for us the text beginning in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning in, actually I want to begin in verse 14. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When we come to this text of Scripture, uh, it's really amazing that you could surmise the whole book of Romans into these two verses. And I want to speak to you this morning about the gospel, one gospel for all people. James Boyce, a wonderful man of God and commentator, wrote that these verses are the most important in the letter, and perhaps in all of literature. They are the theme of this epistle and the essence of Christianity. As we've said before, it was Martin Luther's wrestling with and finally coming to understand verse 17 that literally transformed that man's life and led to the whole Protestant Reformation. So these verses have an incalculable effect on world history. They've had And they will have a profound effect on your life personally and on my life personally if God opens our eyes to see the truths that are here this morning. But before we look at these verses in details, I just want you to understand the flow of Paul's reasoning here in his letter. He begins in verse 16 with that word, for... For I am not ashamed. And you wonder, okay, what has he been talking about here? It connects it to verse 15. Your your Bible may have a little subheading there. ESV has the righteous shall live by faith as we begin verse 16. But really, they almost run together. So he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why? Why, Paul? And then he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. When we stop and we think of what that means to be ashamed of the gospel, you can probably conclude a lot of different things. But I think to bring it down to real life, to bring it down to where the, as we say, the rubber meets the road for us, what does it mean to not be ashamed of the gospel? 
I would have to tell you that if you're not ashamed of the gospel, I think that you will be proclaiming the gospel. Can you be a Christian and be ashamed of the gospel? I would say yes. Because I know way too many Christians who do not proclaim the gospel. They may live for Christ. You hear a lot of Christians that say, well, I don't like to preach to people, but I just live my life the way God wants me to, and hopefully they'll get the message of the gospel somehow. Well, unless you live a perfect life, that's never going to happen. And if it was the idea to not be ashamed of the gospel, to just live a Christian life, that's all it means, then our pet animals could do that rather well. Because a lot of times when we think of not being ashamed of the gospel, we somehow connect it with the way we live. Well, you have to do certain things. You have to live a certain way. If you don't smoke, if you don't drink. I don't know of any pets that do those things. At least not them, none that I've seen. And if that's the case, would that make them not ashamed of the gospel? It's silly, but no, it wouldn't. So we can't really say that just because the way we live means that we're not ashamed by the gospel or ashamed of the gospel. But it really has the idea that if we're not ashamed of the gospel, we will be proclaiming this message because we understand that it's the power of God unto salvation. And so Paul says here, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. I'm not ashamed to do that. Why? Because it's the only way that someone's going to get saved. It's the only way someone can hear the truth of God. And I think far too many believers today, myself included, take too casually our call to preach the gospel, our call to personal evangelism, our call to reach the lost for Christ. The Bible says he who wins souls is wise. And I think sometimes maybe we rest on our laurels too much in our theological camp, and say, well, God's just going to work it all out. Well, that's true, he will, because God's sovereign. God's sovereign in salvation, clearly. But that does not negate our our responsibility to preach the gospel of Christ. It's the good news. Why should we be ashamed of it? It's the power of God for salvation. And he says there, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Is this something new that Paul just thought up? Is this something that divine revelation from God that, that, that all of a sudden this is a new truth? No. We're going to look at this today. Because he quotes from the book of Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. But you wonder when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's really an understatement. It's an affirmative that's expressed in, by the negative of the contrary. For example, if you say, he's not a bad athlete, what do you mean? He's pretty good. That's what you mean. And so when Paul is saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel, he means I will glory in the gospel. I'm proud of the gospel. 
But why does he express it this way? Well, there's a lot of reasons why a first century Roman might feel a little bit uncomfortable about this Jewish man coming to a sophisticated city like Rome to preach about a Galilean carpenter, prophet, who was executed by the Roman government in one of the most humiliating ways possible. Crucifixion. After all, this was Rome, the capital of the civilized world. And so your your message better appeal to the educated in this place, or it's not going to fly. It won't be heard. Your message needs to offer political solutions to the pressing needs of the empire, or once again, you won't gain anyone's ear. It had better offer some answers to the massive problems of slavery, of greed, of lust, of violence. Or the people in Rome wouldn't listen to Paul. But you notice that Paul's message here to the Romans, his main message did not directly address those issues. His main message focused on the main need of every human being, beloved, whether it's your soul or mine, whether the most religious Jew or the most educated, worldly, immoral Greek, the need to be reconciled to the holy God is a need that everyone has. How can we be right before God? That's the question Paul is answering. And so Paul's theme here to the Romans is that God and the good news that comes from God tells us how sinners can be delivered from his righteous judgment and reconciled, brought back into a proper relationship with him, their creator. This is called salvation. That's why we say people must be saved. In order to be saved, you have to understand that you're lost. (laughs) And so what Paul is telling us here is because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, we must believe it and proclaim it boldly. That's really what he's saying in these texts. So I want to share with you this morning a couple different points before our communion time together. And we're going to focus on the good news, the gospel of Christ. And the first point is simply this. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what background you come from. Doesn't matter how sinful you've been. Remember who's writing these words. Because he writes them with one of authority. One of experience. One of knowledge. One of testimony. We're talking about an individual who was formerly known as Saul, whose main task as a Jew, a Pharisee, was to go out and slaughter Christians for his religious cause. Not because he had some personal vendetta against them, but he did it for religious matters. He thought he was doing the right thing according to his religion. Squash out these Christians. They're taking glory away from our religion. And that's the way man-made religions are. They compete for people's attention. And so Paul is writing these words as someone who's been personally 
touched, personally transformed by the gospel of God. And he writes with words of conviction, words of passion, words of appeal. Because he understands the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The only way we're going to proclaim it boldly or unashamedly is to believe it. Is to believe it. But to believe the gospel, you first have to understand it. You can't simply say, okay, yeah, I believe the law of Second law of thermodynamics. What's it about? I don't know. I just believe it. (laughs) That wouldn't make any sense. But if you explain the second law of thermodynamics, and everything is kind of decaying, everything is falling apart on a continuous downward spiral, and then you look around and you realize that after a while your car gets rusty, and things break down, and your body begins to break down, and you realize, yeah, this, this law is true. Why? Because you understand it. You believe it. Someone says, do you believe the law of gravity? You would say, sure. And they would say, why? Well, if I pick something up and I drop it on the floor, it's going to fall down. If I jump off a building, I don't float. I fall to the ground. You can see the the law of gravity over here behind the nursery. One of our trees collapsed and went down into their... their, uh, Delivery bay over there. It's been sitting there since Thursday. So this morning I went down and talked to the manager and kind of made things right. And hopefully we'll get that out of there today for them. But they haven't been able to have anybody go through there as a result since Thursday. When the tree broke, it fell because the law of gravity is true. Well, the gospel is true. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. See, the gospel is all about salvation. That's what it's about. It's not about just turning over a new leaf. It's not about feeling good about yourself. It's not about trying to find principles to help you wealthy and and make you wise and and healthy. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel says that it's the power of God to everyone who believes for salvation. That word, believe, there carries the basic idea of trusting in. When you sat in your chair this morning, I don't think that you came over to your chair and checked it out and pushed on it and maybe jumped on a little bit to make sure it would hold you. No, you've been in our church probably before and you've sat in chairs before and they've never collapsed. You have faith that that chair is going to keep you up. When we were at the airport in Chennai waiting for, for Sam and Micah, we were sitting in this kind of three or four person bench outside the airport. You can't go in the airport until you've got to go through all the security. So we're waiting there. And uh, my wife was sitting on the bench, and then I sat on the bench. And then I kind of sat back in the bench, and the whole bench felt like it was going to tip over. Because <laughs> it was kind of cattywampus. It was, it was twisted somehow. It wasn't going to tip over, but it sure felt like it. So I'm waiting for Sam and Micah, and so I'm getting up and down. Every time I'd sit down, we'd both go, oh, oh, you know, because it felt like we were going to fall over. And it took three or four times before I realized and looked at it and said, you know, there's no way this thing's going to tip over. It just feels like it's going to tip over. So then we were a little more relaxed after a while. We had faith that that bench was going to hold us up. That's the idea here of this word believe. It carries the basic idea of trusting in, relying on, having faith in. 
And when it's used in the New Testament of salvation, it is usually in the present continuous form, which means it could be translated is believing. It's daily living filled with acts of faith. That's the idea. That's what faith is all about. That's what Christianity is all about. Don't ever believe that your Christianity can be kind of widowed down to one act of faith on one day saying, oh yeah, I got saved when I was three or I got saved when I was seven and that was it. Well, let me hear your testimony. I always get nervous when I ask for testimonies and people go back to, well, I was in the fifth grade and, 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 and they end it right about there. And my question is always, well, what has God done for you lately? <laughs> Is there anything that God's done in your life since you got saved? Because that's the idea here. It's a continuous belief that God is saving us. It's daily living filled with acts of faith. On our way back, we had to stop over in Dubai. And in India, you're not supposed to drink the water out of the tap because it would make you sick. And so every time you get up to brush your teeth, you take a bottle of water and you do it that way. You don't want to drink the water out of the tap because you're not used to it. And you'll catch a, some kind of something that'll make you sick. So you have this in your mind. At first, it's a little difficult to get into the habit. Because here you just turn the water on and you have faith. That, okay, this water is going to be okay. The water looks clean. doesn't come out muddy or anything, but it, it's not good for you. Because you're not, not from India. So for a couple weeks, that's what we're doing, using water bottles to brush our teeth and rinse our mouth out, whatever. When we stopped in Dubai, we were in the hotel. We both kind of laughed because we both were, we got to brush our teeth. Where's the water? Oh, that's right. We don't have to do that anymore. Praise the Lord. See, and there's little things like that that we just have acts of faith in. When we turn the faucet to get a drink of water, we trust that that water is safe to drink. When we drive across the bridge, we trust that it won't collapse. When we get on an airplane, we, we trust that the pilot's gone through the proper training, even though I've never met this guy. And that he's going to get us to our destination safe and on time. See, people could not live daily without having some form of implicit trust in a lot of different things. Some form of faith. All of living requires natural faith, I would call it. But see, Paul here is not talking about natural faith. He's talking about a supernatural faith. He's talking about a faith that only can come from God. Produced by God. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says that it's a faith not of ourselves. But what? But it's a gift of God. See, that's the faith of the gospel. So I want to explore five statements about salvation that we get from our text this morning. Five statements about salvation. First of all, salvation is the main need of every person. Salvation is the main need of every person. And that's the point here that, that Paul is going to make from verses 18 as we look at this in the coming weeks all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. He shows us over and over again in those those verses, you read through that, what you're going to see is all have sinned and all fall under the righteous condemnation of God. 
And because all have sinned, whether they're some religious Jew or whether they're some worldly Greek, it doesn't matter. All means all. All have been alienated from God. And God is absolutely righteous. And so because of that, all are under God's wrath, under God's judgment. And he immediately explains, we'll look at this next week, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. See, salvation refers to the very act of being rescued from God's wrath, from God's judgment. And it's a judgment and a wrath that we deserve because of our own sin. What it means is, Salvation means that we're delivered from the penalty of sin. We're delivered from the power of sin. We're delivered from the presence of sin, ultimately. When we get saved, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, when God supernaturally transforms our lives and opens our eyes with the gift of faith, we are delivered from the penalty of sin. That happens the moment you, do, you believe. The moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, the penalty of sin goes away. And we're be, being delivered by the power of sin as we grow in godliness, as we, we go through the process of sanctification. As we choose to live daily, more and more for Christ. See, you don't become a Christian one day and live the perfect Christian life the rest of your life. That's the holiness teaching. That's, that's the people that believe somehow you can attain, obtain sinless perfection. That's ridiculous. It goes against whatever Scripture says. We're not called to be perfect in our living. That would be impossible. God wouldn't expect us to be. That's why he gives us grace. That's why we're forgiven from the penalty of sin. But as we choose to live by the power of the Spirit each and every day, as we come under the filling of the Spirit, the control of the Spirit each and every day, which is a continuous thing, the moment you sin, you're yielding, you're you're taking back control from the Holy Spirit of God. That's what you're doing. But when we live under the power of the Spirit, we live in a way that is pleasing to God. We, we see the fruit of the Spirit kind of met out in our lives. We can't manufacture that on our own. That's something God does for us and through us and in us. That's why Paul says that it's God, that Christ, that works in me. It's not something we do. We don't have a little punch list. Oh, now you're a Christian. You can't do this. You can't do that. You have to do this. And if you do all these things, then, then you're going to be... Be righteous in God's eyes. No, that's not what the gospel's about. Salvation refers to being rescued from God's wrath and God's judgment that we deserve. But it also means being delivered from the very presence of sin that will happen when we stand before him one day in glory. Jude, chapter, or verse 24, excuse me, says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you, what? Blameless, holy, right? Before the presence of his glory 
with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. It's God that presents us that way. We don't keep ourselves saved. He does. Salvation also has a lot of positive aspects. You enjoy a reconciled relationship with God, Romans 5.10. You experience his peace, Romans 5.1. You receive the unfathomable riches of Christ, Ephesians 1. But somehow we fall into the trap in the church that we think that we have to sell the gospel. That somehow it's up to us to be a salesman of the gospel. And when we fall into that niche of trying to sell the gospel of Christ, we think, well, you know what, we want to make it appealing to people. And so we want to gloss over the negative aspects of the gospel, the idea that you've got to repent of your sin, that you've got to trust wholly and solely in the work of Christ. And we want to focus only on the positive. When that happens, beloved, we fall into the camp of being ashamed of the gospel. I was sharing with the pastors over there last Saturday that shared with them the illustration of don't think for a second that as a pastor of your church that somehow you're the cook. That somehow you've got to go in the kitchen and you've got to make up some ingredients that are going to appeal to your people. That's not our role. And I shared with them the, the illustration that we're not the cook, we're, we're simply the waiter. We bring God's food to the table. If people eat it, God bless them. If they don't, that's their problem. But we don't want to change the meal. We don't want to change the ingredients of the gospel. And there's a lot of too many churches today that are doing just that. We do not need God's salvation and Christ's did not need to die on the cross if we're all basically good people who just need a little bit of encouragement to be right with God. That's not the gospel. We don't need a crucified Savior if our main need is just to polish our self-esteem and learn some helpful hints for living. Beloved, we need a Savior... We need a Christ who died, who was crucified in our place for our sins because... By nature, all of us are ungodly. All of us are sinful. All of us have rebelled against God's authority and his law. And we're under God's righteous wrath. Now, that's an offense. You may be here this morning and say, well, that's offensive. I'm a good person. No, you're not. You're not a good person. I'm not a good person. None of us are good people. We've all done things that have violated God's word whether it's tell a lie or take something that's not our own, irrespective of its value, or think a a lustful thought of someone else, whatever it might be. All those things are an offense to God. And those offenses have to be dealt with. And if you pull those, those basic ingredients out of the gospel and you make it just a little happy message that Jesus loves everybody and you just, you just, you know, say a little prayer and that's it. That's being ashamed of the gospel. That's being offensive to God's message of the gospel. The gospel is only good news to the person who realizes that he needs to be saved. 
And that if he doesn't, he'll spend all eternity in hell apart from God under the condemnation of God. Well, secondly, salvation requires the very power of God. The power of God. It says there the gospel does not tell people about the power of God. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say go out and tell people about the power of God. No, it says the gospel is the power of God. That's where the power of God lies for salvation. That means that salvation is some, not something that sinners can attain by their own efforts or their own good works. It's impossible. If that were so, Christ died in vain on the cross. He didn't need to die because somehow we could save ourselves. Get out of your mind that salvation is some kind of a joint project between you and God. You know, God does his part. Now you have to contribute your part. You might be saying, well, don't, you know, you just said you have to believe. Yes, you do. And we'll see that in a moment. Salvation is received and sustained by faith alone from start to finish. But saving faith, which includes repentance, is not something that sinners can produce on their own. Even repentance is something that's granted to us, the Bible says. It's the gift of God, Ephesians says, so that no one may boast. And it's crucial to see that salvation does not depend on a human decision. But it depends on the very power of God. It requires that God impart new life to a dead sinner. You couldn't go into a morgue and say, hey, I want to ask you a question, dead person. They wouldn't respond. There's no way they could respond. They're dead. We're called dead in our trespasses and sin. There's no way we could respond to the gospel in and of ourselves unless God makes that possible through his power. It requires that God impart that new life to a dead sinner, something that's impossible for men to bring about. Remember when Jesus cried out, in John 11, to Lazarus, after he was dead, some four days, he said, Lazarus, come forth. I mean, the people there probably thought, this man is crazy. I mean, this guy's been dead for four days. You really think he's going to just get up and walk out of there? We've seen the body. He's dead. There's no life there. He's speaking to a dead man. He's been in the tomb for four days. But see, the neat thing here is the power of God through the word of Jesus imparted life to this dead man. He was dead. The gospel is just like that spiritually. Even when the rich young ruler walked away from eternal life. Remember that? He said, well, what do I have to do to be saved? Jesus gave him a list of stuff. and He said, oh, I've done all that. You look in Matthew 19. Jesus ends there and he says to his disciples, because his disciples were kind of concerned about Jesus' message. He thought, wait a minute, this, this is kind of a hard message, Jesus. We have all these followers and you're telling them that this is impossible. He tells the man, go and possess, sell everything you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man, verse 22, heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had many great possessions. He was unwilling to give up all for Christ. 
See, that's the neat thing about the gospel. It's all or nothing. You can't take some and and leave half of it behind. It's either a full-on commitment or you don't have the gospel. And after hearing that and seeing that, his disciples looked at him and said, Man, you're not helping our cause here, Jesus. You're causing these people to walk away. And so in verse 23, it says, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, and then he says this, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There have been a lot of commentators that have commented on that verse, saying, wow, you know, here's what he meant. He meant the gate? No, he meant exactly what he said. I really believe that. Because look at what he says to them. They said the disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished, verse 23 or 25. Who then can be saved? That's the question. Who can be saved? If you're saying it's so impossible, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, what? With man. This is impossible. Salvation is not something that comes from us, beloved. It's not something that comes from man. But he says, but with God, all things are possible. Salvation is something that can only come from the Lord. Jonah 2.9. Salvation is from the Lord. It requires the very power of God. The gospel is not something that we just give people to help them with their life. Some helpful advice. Maybe that person uh, try to work things out. It's the very power of God imparting new life and salvation to those who are dead in their trespasses and sin, under God's judgment, under God's wrath, under God's condemnation. One commentator says, the preaching of the word does not merely make salvation possible, but affects salvation in those who are called. We don't know who's called. We don't know who's chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved. We don't know that. They don't have a little C on their forehead saying, oh, there's a called one. I'll go witness to that guy because I know God's... No. We don't know. That's why he says go and preach the gospel to everyone. The third thing here, salvation demands the righteousness that the righteousness of God be upheld and applied to the guilty sinner. Look at what it says in verse 17. Paul explains why the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he says this, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. How is it revealed? It's revealed through His Son, the Lord Jesus. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul explains his own conversion. And he says this, But when God who had set me apart from my mother's womb... And called me through his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son in me. So the gospel comes to us by revelation from God that centers on his son. Paul here doesn't lead off with the love of God in the gospel. He doesn't focus on the love of God. He focuses on the word righteousness. The righteousness of God. That has to be the center point of the gospel. 
I mean, surely God's gospel presents God's love for sinners. Romans 5, 8, right? God showed his love to us. Romans 3, 16, or John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. I mean, if God is just loving as we've made him today, unfortunately, but not so righteous, then it's easy to to view him as this good buddy upstairs in the sky that helps us out when we're in time of need. But see, the righteousness of God presents a problem because we all know that we've sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And if God is righteous and we are not, what does the Bible say? We need a Savior. We need something Someone who can help us with our unrighteousness, with our sin. But what does Paul mean here when he says the righteousness of God is revealed? It may mean the attribute of, of righteousness that God possesses. It may be referring to God's saving power and being faithful to his covenant promise. God is himself righteous. It also mean, may mean that gospel, the gospel reveals how sinners may be righteous, may be justified before God by faith. I mean, that's what really he's saying here. He's saying there's no way for you to become righteous outside of God. It tells us there in Romans, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for those who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3. But being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of those, of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, we come before God this morning in this communion table not having a righteousness of our own. We come because we put our faith and trust in the living God, in Christ, sacrifice on our behalf. And God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. And he can grant us a right standing before God because he imputes his righteousness to us, Christ's righteousness on us. We don't have a righteousness of our own. There's none righteous. No, not one. And so sinners are not justified by their own righteousness or by keeping of the law, but rather by God giving them the righteousness of Christ. Paul says that plainly in Philippians 3, by the way. He contrasts his former life with his his current life. And he says, not having a righteousness of my own with Christ, of my own derived from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from what? From living good life, from, from following all the commandments, from doing this, from going to church, by praying? No. It comes from God on the basis of faith. I think this is one of the most misunderstood theological understandings in the Christian's life today. If you get this right, if you understand when you are saved from your sin that God declares you righteous, what does that do? That gives you a whole new perspective on the way you're going to live your life. I don't know about you, but if if I thought somehow every time I sinned, every time I fell short, every time I did something that violated God's command in thought or deed, that God was up there with a big bat ready to hit me, I don't think I would go to that kind of a God and say, hey, sorry, Father, I've sinned. Reminded growing up in the church when I'd go to the confessional, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. It's been a month since my last confession. Then you start listing off your sins. And then the priest would say, I can't remember what he'd say, some words, and then he'd say, here, you have to go kind of make penance. So go say five, our fathers, three Hail Marys, and you'd leave the little booth, and you'd go out, and you'd kneel down, pious and everything, and start chanting and saying these prayers. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, kingdom, and the world be done, and the give us the day, daily bread, and give us our trespasses, we give those trespasses, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be and we'd say it over and over. Hail Mary, full grace, Lord is with you, bless our time, and we'd just do it. Why? Because he told us to do it. We were earning God's favor. We thought somehow that made us righteous before God. I say that growing up in a Roman Catholic church, but beloved, I really believe there's a lot of Christians in the church today that look at their Christianity the same way. They believe somehow by coming here Sunday morning and warming a pew that somehow God's going to love them more. That somehow God is going to look at them as, as more righteous than those who stayed home and watched football. simply not true. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are declared righteous. Not because of something you've done or something that you're doing. When we were in India, we had the opportunity to share with some salesmen at a certain rug store, which was just kind of divine appointment. We'll share more about it next week. But the one thing that I shared with them, they're Roman Catholic, Muslim, Sikh, and Hindu. And because you're from America, and they want to talk to you, so they started asking us different things, and it led to one thing, and then they take you down to the showroom, they want you to buy something, right? So they're, they're, they're going to want to listen to us, because <laughs> they, 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 you know, they don't want to be rude, so we just basically shared the gospel with them, and then we were in a circle talking, and, and the one thing that I was sharing with them simply was, you know what, the, world, the religions of the world can be identified by one word. It's D-O, what you do. And I asked the one Muslim gentleman there, I said, uh, so what, what do you have to do to please your God? Oh, we do lots of things, but pray five times a day. Okay, you do that, yeah. So you do it five times a day. Well, you know, I'm working. I, I, you know, I can't do it five times a day. I try to do it in the morning or, you know, sometimes I'll miss. Or, and I asked him, I said, doesn't that make your God angry? 
Mm. Kind of said, yeah. So, so what do you do about that? Do you want your God to be angry? Well, but you can't really do it five times a day. So I said, see, my God's different. And I share with them the gospel of Christ. It's not dependent on what I do. It's dependent on what was done on my behalf. That's why we celebrate communion. We're celebrating what Christ has done for us. We don't have a righteousness of our own. Fourthly, salvation is by faith from finish to, from start to finish. Paul mentions here believing or faith four times in these verses. To everyone who believes from faith to faith, the righteous shall live by faith. If salvation comes through faith plus good works, what I believed growing up, then that's not good news. Because you could never know whether you've piled up enough good works to save you or not. But if God declares guilty sinners to be righteous and justified, the instant they believe and put their faith and trust, that's good news. We need to be clear here on several things. First, saving faith in Christ is not a general belief that He is the Savior. What do I mean by that? The Bible says the demons believe that Jesus is Savior. That doesn't save them. Well, what is saving faith? Saving faith has three elements. First of all, with the mind, we must understand the content of the gospel. What do I mean by that? You have to understand who Jesus is, that He was the Son of God, He wasn't just some good teacher. I asked my Muslim friend, I said, do you think Jesus was a good teacher? Oh, yeah, he's a very good man, very good teacher. I said, do you know what Jesus said? What did he say? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He said that? Yeah, he said that. You still think he's a good teacher? Would he lie? Oh, no, he wouldn't lie. Said, well, then what he said was true. You have to understand who Jesus is. You have to also understand what his death on the cross means. What his death on the cross means. His death on the cross, beloved, means that we get to live. His death on the cross means that he was willing to pay the price for our sin. It wasn't just some little kind of afterthought, oh yeah, I'll die for these people, big deal. No, this was planned before the foundation of the world. And you also have to understand that he was raised from the dead. If Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, he would just be another dead religious figure. So you have to understand the content of the gospel, who Jesus is, what his death means, and that he was raised from the dead. Second, you have to have a heart response to the truth of the gospel, where we agree that it's true and our agreement causes our hearts to be sorrowful over our sin. But it also causes us to rejoice in the free offer of God's grace. To understand that God gives us salvation free. It's not something we earn. It's not something we work for. And thirdly, saving faith includes a commitment to Christ. That's very clear. Jesus taught that over and over again. We have to trust in Him. We have to trust in His death on the cross as our only hope for eternal life. And then we follow Him as our Lord. We obey Him the best we know how on a daily basis. See, saving faith is not a work that we do. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is rather 
simply receiving all that God offers us in Christ. It's the hand that receives the free gift of God. We also need to understand what Paul means by this phrase, faith to faith. There's a lot of different points on this. But it simply means, you know what? As you believe, continue to believe, it requires faith. And that's continuous. You don't just believe here that Jesus saved you and you're saved and then you don't have to believe ever, ever, ever again. No, it's a continuous faith. It's faith to faith, day to day. That's why he says thirdly here, you have to understand how Paul, under, what he means by Habakkuk 2.4 when he says the righteous shall live by faith. What's he doing? Paul's saying, hey, this isn't something I thought up. This is not some new message. This is something that comes from the prophets. This is something that comes from the Old Testament. This isn't some new way of salvation. People sometimes say, well, how did, how did people get saved in the Old Testament? Oh, they got saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. No, they didn't. There's nobody that could ever keep the Ten Commandments or any of the other law that was given. The Ten Commandments are just a small part of the Mosaic Law, beloved. There's a lot of other things you'd have to keep as well. The law of God was given to show our inadequacy to keep the law of God. So that we would understand that God's standard is so high, there's no way we could ever meet it. That's why we need to be saved. That that righteousness can only be attained on a basis of faith. The one who is righteous shall live by faith. Are you living by faith? Are you living by what you see on a daily basis? Paul's using this quote to say the one who is righteous or justified by faith will live, that is, be saved. The fifth thing here, salvation is not is individual. Salvation is individual and it's personal. It's not corporate and national. Just because you were born in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. Paul says here, that the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Notice that he says to the Jew, singular, to the Greek, singular. He could have said, oh, to the Jews, to the Greeks, to everybody. No. He uses a singular noun here. And the reason he does is because he wants us to know that it's something that's individual. We put our faith in Christ. God saves us. Individually. It's not a corporate or a national mindset as the Jews believed. Being a member of the Jewish race will not get you saved. Even though the Jews are God's chosen people. Salvation is a personal, individual matter. Being an American or being a member of a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. You must personally believe the gospel of Christ. The Jew first, he basically means the gospel came first to the Jews. God chose Abraham and his descendants through Isaac and Jacob as the race which he revealed his salvation to. Fortunately, they rejected. It was through the Jews that the Savior came. John 4.22, Jesus says salvation is from the Jews. 
Paul is saying here that it's for everyone who will believe, not just for the Jews, not just for the pagan Greek. It's good news, whatever your background is. Ask yourself this morning, are you a self-righteous, religious, moral person? Maybe you're a good person in your own mind. But you need to recognize that you still need to receive the righteousness that comes from God through Christ by faith. Finally here, last two points quickly. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, we must believe it. I want to ask you this morning, have you believed the gospel? Have you abandoned all your self-righteous attitudes and ideas and good works as a basis for your standing before God and instead trusted only in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Christians, do you believe that the gospel is good news when you fail and Satan accuses you? On the basis of your right standing before God, do you daily battle against sin so that your attitudes and your behaviors and all that can be progressively more righteous each day, being sanctified, being made more like the Son? It's God's power to save you from the power of sin evident in your relationship, is it? Is it evident in your relationship, whether in the home or at work? Lastly, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Beloved, we have to proclaim it. We have to do so boldly. We're going to talk about this a little bit next week. But I want to ask you this morning, are you ashamed of the gospel? Do you look for ways out when God opens doors? Because maybe you're just a little intimidated to share or to warn people about the wrath of God. Because maybe it's not a popular idea or maybe to isolate people. You avoid telling people about the shed blood of Jesus Christ as the only remedy for their sin. Because it sounds kind of creepy. It sounds kind of primitive. Do you try to put a positive spin on the message of the gospel that God has already given us? So hopefully it sounds kind of like a positive plan so these people can have a happy life. If you do those things, I would say you're ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has revealed to us how we can be rescued from the wrath of God. I pray this morning that your faith, your trust is in that message of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. Lord, we pray for our communion time. Lord, we we ask that you would uh, do that work in our hearts. Lord, your word is very clear that you call us to examine ourselves as Christians as we come to this table. If there's any unbelievers here this morning, that's okay. Don't, don't, don't feel weird or anything. But this is a time for us believers to gather around this, this bread and this, this juice to remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us. And he did so personally. And so this is a way of us symbolizing his, his death. And when we take that cracker and we drink that cup, we remember his body and his blood that was shed for us. And if you're not a believer here this morning, that's okay, just pass the elements by. No one will embarrass you. No one's here to point that out. This is between you and God. 
And so as Dan comes and, and we uh, prepare our hearts for our communion time, Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son. We thank you, Lord, that you're doing a work in and through us. We thank you, Lord, that we're not only declared righteous, but we're being saved each and every day, faith to faith, practically being made more like your son. Father, we're far from perfect. We've got a ways to go. And Lord, that's where your grace comes in. Because it's by your grace we've been saved. If there's any here this morning who've yet put their faith, their trust, in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, this morning could be that morning. They cry out to you, Lord, I hear the words this man says and, and it makes sense. I don't have a righteousness of my own. I've done a lot of wrong things. And one day I'm going to die and I'm going to stand before you, the righteous judge. And the simple question is going to be asked of me, what did I do with your son? What did I do with Jesus Christ? Did I embrace his message of love and forgiveness? Or did I hold on to my pride and dig in my heels and hope maybe one day things will work out? Just cry out to God this morning, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Help me to make sense of this message I'm hearing. He'll do that this morning for you. And Christians, just be reminded that when we leave this place here today, there's so many lost people in all the world, but especially here in the peninsula. God has supernaturally, sovereignly planted us here on this, in this place where probably less than 4% of anybody goes to any kind of church. And there's a need for the good message of the gospel to go out and be declared and proclaimed that, that many will come and be converted and be saved from their sin pray you'd start a fresh work in our hearts. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.